bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the completed canon so that we can continue to learn and learn. What a wonderful blessing an evening like this is. May we never become familiar with it, but rather embrace it for what it truly is, a form of grace motivated by your love. That same precious love was evidenced on a cross 2,000 years ago that canceled out that debt against us, making a night like this one even a reality for all of us. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation, Sanctification, Part 62. Uh, The Spirit gave us a little more insight into the passage that we first visited on Sunday, uh, namely Ephesians 3.11. Let's go back there now and review some additional labor that we did on Tuesday. So Ephesians 3.11 came up on Sunday originally. We dug our heels in a little further on Tuesday. uh, It was an old friend from not too long ago. We started um, with Ephesians 3.11 by sort of remembering it coming up in uh, part 41 of the series, if you remember, when we were talking about eternal purpose. So let's start there again, and I'll just review uh, what we talked about on Tuesday. Ephesians 3.11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose that was our old friend friend from a few months ago, with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith. We're going to talk more about faith this evening. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart. We're going to talk about courage this evening as well. So a lot of things coming together at once. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, think of our family this evening, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith not just your minds, remember, through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able then to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up, that Greek word pleroo, to all the fullness of God. So as a point of review... From Tuesday, we had to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Christ's love is far beyond human intellect, far beyond human reason or thinking. It surpasses, and that's that Greek word, hyperbolo, which means to transcend. So this, the love of Christ, it surpasses, it transcends anything we could think about even which means that it's not just bound to the finite human mind. There's much more to it. Obviously, the supernatural is in view, but that's what religious people try to do. They try to box God in. They try to box the Word in. And the very worst thing, I guess the pinnacle of boxing anything in, would be boxing in the love of God, because God is love. And to put a box on that with tidy little bow and you know categorical this and definition that, would be a huge tragedy. But that's exactly what most religions try to do. They try to quantify, in human terms, the love of God. Try doing that. How do you quantify? Okay, how much money would you give for the love of God? How much would you give for the love of God, period? How do you quantify that? The best you have is, I'll give everything. I surrender. And that echoes, obviously, of our salvation. I surrender myself to my Lord and Savior. Filled up to the fullness of God. Compare with the fullness of Christ in verse 4.13 and the fullness 
of the Spirit in 5.13, so we have this sort of triad which maps directly to the Trinity. Uh, and Paul is sort of verbose, if you would, on the subject of being full of God. And he calls out each individual person of the, tri- of the Trinity uh, in that context with the same language, with the same Greek root word, matter of fact. So what is Paul getting at? The same thing that Jesus was. Hold your thumb there. Go to Matthew 5.48. Paul says, being filled up to the fullness of God. Well, first, Paul's saying the same thing that Jesus was saying. This is not a novel concept to be full or filled with God, pleroo. Matthew 5.48, and it does not mean just indwelling. It does not mean the indwelling. This is talking about something more spiritual, uh, uh, I should say, more practical than that. Matthew 5.48, Therefore, you are to be perfect, complete, full of maturity. Perfect, complete, full of maturity, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, that's the direction in which he's taking or sanctifying us. Let's see the absolute truth about what Paul's language means here. Up, uh, go up here on the board, I've also given you the, three, uh, the two other persons of the Godhead that we looked at on Tuesday, first in Ephesians 4.13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, Same book, same author, same concept. It's the fullness of God, but in this context, he's talking about the fullness of Christ. And then, of course, we have that very familiar passage that we've been to many times for other reasons. Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, there's that fullness, being filled, uh, pleuroo. Okay, go back to Ephesians 3.19 then. Ephesians 3.19. So we have Paul saying... In all three senses, we saw Jesus mention it um, in Matthew 5.48. It's not a novel concept to be full, and it's an experiential thing. Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. In other words, do not try to bound that in any way with your mind, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Again, Paul writes about the fullness of God the same way that Jesus alluded to it, as we just noted in Matthew 5.48. But Peter also alluded to this filling as well. Hold your thumb. Go to 1 Peter 1.14. 1 Peter 1.14. So this concept, as you can imagine, was not novel to the apostles. to the writers in the New Testament to be filled this way. First Peter, now this is Peter writing. First Peter 1.14, as obedient children, well, filled children are obedient uh, because filled implies controlled as well. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So to be filled up means to be holy, to be set apart, to be filled up, to be full of God. That's what it means, to be holy experientially, and that's what Peter's getting at. These things are all the same basic concept, folks. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so Peter's just calling it out in a slightly different way. Go back to Ephesians 3.19. But the general concept is the same, is that as he sanctifies us, his intention is to make us holy, to set us apart for his purposes, and that, of course, means to be filled up. Whenever we produce, if you want to get more theological, when we produce good fruit, it means that we're bearing what? Fruit of the Spirit. It means we're filled. It means He's encouraging us that way. These are all related, folks. That's what it means. 
Ephesians 3.19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And on the fullness of God, I'll give you J. Vernon McGee. And he's referring specifically uh, to Ephesians 3.19, the occurrence in 3.19. J. Vernon McGee, on the fullness of God, Christ was filled, was thus filled, in proportion to our comprehension of the love of Christ, we shall be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, they're one and the same. Christ was thus filled in proportion to our comprehension of the love of Christ. We shall be filled with all the fullness of God. Hold your thumb there one last time. Go to Colossians 2.8, where we find just a little bit more on this subject of being filled being, you'll hear words like being, you know, matured, being sanctified, being set apart, being full, filled, fullness. Colossians 2.8, when you're talking about experiential things, they're all in the same realm, folks. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, Christ was, to McGee's point on the board, Christ was full of God, obviously. It says, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, matured. There's the same concept we looked at earlier. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Okay, so in our spiritual baptism, so to speak, we identify with Christ. That's what Paul is getting at there in Colossians 2.12. Again, that was to amplify the point on the board from McGee. Christ was thus filled, speaking of the fullness of God. Christ was thus filled. In proportion to our comprehension of the love of Christ, then we shall be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, go back to Ephesians 3.19. Ephesians 3.19, those things, that's just more Scripture of course, we're going through those passages pretty quickly, but hopefully you see the gist of what the Spirit is saying. He's just amplifying the concept of being full. Ephesians 3.19 And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up, pleroo, to all the fullness of God. Remember, the reason we originally visited this passage was to amplify the fact that the love of Christ is far beyond the limits of the human mind, man's thoughts, that is. That was why we ended up a couple of lessons ago with Ephesians 3 in the first place. It was really to amplify the fact that the love of Christ is far beyond the limits of human mind. But somehow God has given us the faculties within the new self to develop a true sense of reality regarding these things. In other words, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're failing the spiritual life if you can't articulate the love that you have, let's say, for Christ or the love that you have inside. It doesn't mean that you're failing it just because you don't have the vocabulary or that you haven't been able to put a box around it. Maybe just maybe you're not supposed to put a box around it. Maybe just maybe you'd be doing yourself a huge disservice by trying to put a box around the love of God. Love should be, not to be corny, but love should be free. Right? There shouldn't be bounds on love. People are so uptight about the subject, and it's obvious why. I mean, because the world has sold some other form and format of love. And uh, God's love really doesn't fit in that box. So we become uncomfortable at the very prospect of a love being so great that nothing can contain it. Some people that scares because they're control freaks. Well, where does control freakishness come from? The flesh. The new self says, I blow my mind. 
I, I want to be, I want to have my mind blown every single day because that's what ultimate sanctification is going to be like. That's what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be mind blowing every day. So God has given us the faculties. We can't explain it necessarily. Who wants to try to explain the love of God that they have right now? I can't. But He has given us a sense in this, in all the above, including the spiritual, the transcendent. He's given us the ability or the faculties to develop a true sense of reality regarding these things. And if it's not obvious, I purposely hold back here in my language for the simple fact that I cannot teach in words what the Holy Scriptures reveal as truth of the matter. What I mean to say is that if the Bible says, and it does, if the Bible says something's indescribable, doesn't that just hack off any further attempt at trying to describe it? It's indescribable. It cannot be described. So who am I? I guess that's what I'm saying. Who am I to impede on your spiritual growth by suggesting I can adequately articulate His essence. Who am I? Or since we are being sanctified and transformed into His image, who am I to suggest that I can describe all that He's doing in you? It's not my place. I don't know. I mean, I see it in people. I hear and see the fruit of it in people's lives. But... I can't describe, I don't want to describe, I wouldn't want to impede your own relationship with Christ by trying to put your love for Him in a box. So I won't. With that said, let's press on a bit more in the passage now. Look at Ephesians 3.20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, that's, for example, sanctifying us, He's going to do more than we ask or think. That's what part of sanctification is. We don't know what tomorrow is going to be like or a year from now or five years from now, what he's going to do with us. None of us here could possibly say, let's face it, that five years ago you knew you would be at this place spiritually five years ago. You you wouldn't have guessed it. You probably would have guessed something else. I don't know what that would have been, but you wouldn't have guessed this. So again, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power, there's that Greek word, dunamis, that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So concentrate now. Whenever we read such passages as Ephesians 3, and as I was thinking about this this morning preparing, Um, Philippians 3 rings a bell too. These passages, Ephesians 3, Philippians 3, whenever we read such things, we ought to be thoroughly encouraged. Thoroughly encouraged. So let's go to that other passage now where Paul encourages all the more. And some of this particular passage reads like he wrote it for our church. Go to Philippians 3.1. Philippians 3.1, just another encouraging passage not just Ephesians 3, but now Philippians 3. <clears throat> so let's be encouraged. Truth be told, there are so many things to be encouraged by, folks. So many things in this world um, and other people. I mean, look around. Seriously, look at, look at the people here. I mean, here we sit in the triangle, and this is a nice population of people that are still positive to Christ, that still love Him, that still want to learn more about Him. Right? Aren't you encouraged? Romans 1.12, by each other's faith? I am. I mean, this is what it's all about. The heck with the world. Right? That place is a sewer pipe. This is where it's at. And we're all here, and we're doing this thing together as family. To me, this is encouraging. Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. That would be the religious. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God 
and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. That is fantastic. Forget yesterday. So you, you sucked. A lollipop. You didn't do so well yesterday. So what? That was yesterday. Press on, right? Forgetting what lies behind. How would you like to have Paul's history? He was out murdering people, stoning them. How would you like to have that? Hey. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. I mean, look, some of us can literally relate to these people right now. These people are in our lives. And these are the people that, I don't know about you, but they make me weep sometimes. I can't think too long about them. And these might be people that are really close to me because of flesh and blood, let's say, or just proximity. These people are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power. There it is again, dunamai, this time different. Same uh, Greek root word, dunamai, though. That He has even to subject all things to Himself. Are you encouraged yet? I hope so. If not, I'm not sure what to say, really. Maybe tonight, before you go to sleep, reread Ephesians 3 and Philippians 3, back to back. That might help. I mean, it might take you all of 120 seconds, right? That's two minutes for the slow. Oh, sorry. I was just kidding. Jeez. Whoa, 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 whoa. We were encouraged until you got all cocky. In any case, I hope you're hearing what the Spirit's been saying up here on the board practical sanctification. If you are being encouraged daily, then you are being sanctified daily. That's the truth. There are real practical things about being sanctified. You Look, when you were sanctified positionally, nothing really changed other than your faculties and your gifts that you didn't really know much about. You might have been appreciative, but that was about it. The gavel came down and you were judicially imputed righteousness you're going to heaven. Good deal. But that's not how it works experientially. You still have a flesh. You still have life to live. So these things have 
a literal bearing on your life, a literal bearing on your experience in time. That's why I'm calling it practical sanctification. And if you're encouraged daily, if you're being encouraged by, say, a message like this one, listen, you could have heard this message 10 years ago and been like, what is that guy even talking about? But you hear it tonight and you're very much encouraged because you have some kind of a ability based on previous growth that now you're able to encourage it all the more. Have you ever gone back to a passage and said, I never saw that before. That is so encouraging that I'm able to go back to this passage and have my mind blown. That's encouraging, folks, and that's part of being sanctified. If you weren't sanctified, that wouldn't have happened. That's what he's saying. So look for the real things in your life. It's important. He's encouraging you. He wants you to be encouraged. That's part of the proof of your faith, remember. So if you are being encouraged daily, then you are being sanctified daily, experientially. Consider the flip side. If you are discouraged, something's wrong. God will never discourage a person for doing good. The fact that you're more encouraged today than you were yesterday is a very real aspect of experiential sanctification. As a side note, if you're feeling discouraged, remember that said discouragement is a result of your own human plans being smashed by the sovereign God. He's doing you a favor by revealing to you how discouragement is at the core of the flesh. In other words, if you sign up for the flesh's team, I'm going to go play with the flesh for now, you will be discouraged because the energy of the flesh is not dunamis. It's not the power of God. It's going to whittle out and fade and fail. It's going to fail you every time. But God's power never does. And that's the distinction. So if you sign up for that team, you will be discouraged eventually. So logically, if you're feeling discouraged, guess whose team you've been playing on? You've been playing on your roommate's team, right? The awful one. Let's review that other strain of synthesizing we completed on the topic of encouragement. I'll give you the critical verses up here on the board. Romans 14.23b said, And whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 12.3b said, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. James 1.17a, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. And then finally, James 3.17a, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits unwavering. So if you want to be encouraged, you can synthesize these things up here on the board. Those are the verses. Here are the points that we synthesized on Tuesday. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Faith is a grace gift. Every gift from God is perfect. God's gifts are the seeds of good fruit. For example, encouragement. You might think you can water that down to say, well, if I want to be encouraged, then I've got to have what? Faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Faith is a grace gift. Every gift from God is perfect. So if you want to be encouraged, and God's the one who gives perfect encouragement, then you've got to get faith. Faith comes from what? Hearing. Hearing what? The word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Hmm. Doing what you're doing right now. Reading your own Bibles. Thinking about Scripture. You don't have to even look at the words on the ink on pages to conjure up the Bible itself. Remember the Spirit's there to bring into remembrance the things that He's already taught you. Concentrate a little more. The point of all this labor up here on the board, you have every reason under heaven to be encouraged. I guess that's what he's having me say in the last couple of lessons now. Please, be encouraged. If I see, listen, you're a motley crew. How do I know? Because I'm one of them. And I see changes in everybody here. I don't always say it because it's not my business. And technically, I guess I could be wrong. But generally speaking, I see changes in everyone that I see in the congregation. And it's fantastic. So even if it's just 
Romans 1.12, you being encouraged by my faith. Know that I'm encouraged by you personally, and I'm saying this everybody here. I mean that personally, one-on-one. Don't ask me to come and validate it after class. I really do mean it, okay? I'm not making eye contact because people are like, are you talking about me? <laughs> yes, you. That's just DJ back there. Right? Please be encouraged. So you have every reason under heaven to be encouraged, not just about where you're going regarding ultimate sanctification. That's wonderful. You're going to heaven. You're going to be all set. It's going to be wonderful. But where he's taking you right now regarding experiential sanctification. How about right now? How about what he's doing in you right now? Be encouraged. If you still don't believe me or you think I'm some kind of a, I don't know, over-exuberant crackpot, then please accept my encouragement to simply keep reading your Bible. I have full confidence that if you persistently read your Bible, you will be encouraged. You will be. I can only speak from my own truth. I've actually done this before. Gotten up out of bed, the wrong side of bed, crabby. You know, I know, it's hard to believe. And I've gone like this. I'm like, I have no idea what you're going to say to me right now. And I literally went like this and started reading. And before I was done, I was washed. I kid you not. Why? Because I had faith that when I did that, he would do it. Knock and the door shall be open. Those who seek, find, right? I was seeking a better attitude that day. And I said, I know the only place I can find it is in this book. And it doesn't matter where it is because it's all awesome. I'm going to get some email tonight. I opened up to Leviticus. (laughs) Didn't know what was going on with those priests. Some crazy people back then. I really feel good about myself. But if that's what happens, that's what happens. Right? Just keep on reading. It happens. I mean, just keep reading your Bible. What I cannot impart to your soul, the Spirit with the Word certainly can. Another way to consider your faith's role then is in this is an old principle that I've taught many times. Courage is faith applied. That's something we've established many times. Courage is really just another word for faith applied. Therefore, to be encouraged means to inspire one's faith in the direction of doing righteously. In other words, be encouraged. In other words, faith is at the root of your own encouragement. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Again, Courage is really just another word for faith. Well, then I want faith. If I want to be, I want to have courage and I want to be encouraged, if I want to be encouraged, then I better get more what? Faith. How do I get more faith? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Draw the conclusion right now in your soul if it's not already there. And if it is, then grab hold of it all the more. Faith comes from the word imparted. The Holy Spirit will convict you of the authority of the word so as to wash away any doubts. The faithful are the courageous. The faithful are the courageous. The courageous are the faithful. They're the same people. All the people in the Bible that have great courage, quote-unquote, had great faith. Anybody thinking of David right now? How about David with Goliath? Think of David when all of his countrymen, even King Saul, were cowering at the sight of Goliath. The difference? Why did David display so much matter-of-fact courage? He had faith that the others didn't. It's that simple. It's that simple. This is just an excerpt from 1 Samuel 17, 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him, talking about Goliath, your servant will go and fight with, the, with this Philistine. <laughs> Love that guy. 
Little David. Now, you had a, the whole scene is magnificent because David's just the little shepherd that sort of just happenstanced on the scene. He's like, what's up with you guys? Why isn't someone taking this guy out? So what? He's a big lug. I'll do it. So he did it. And here he is talking to Saul, who's the king. Now think of, you know, the reverence that David had for the position of king. Think of the reverence that most of Israel would have had for the king. And there's David, the shepherd, the young one. I'll take him out. What's up with you guys? Kind of baffled by the whole scene, right? Why? Because that's what faith looks like. True faith. So, may I submit the following then? Courage has no rank. Courage has no rank. In other words, you can be the youngest, most underrated person in a group, and with true courage, you will shine. Courage has no rank. David's a perfect example up here on the board is his heart. Psalm 28, 7 in the Amplified. The Lord is my strength and my impenetrable shield. My heart trusts with unwavering confidence in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices. And with my song, I shall thank Him and praise Him. How pure was this guy? How pure was his faith? How pure was David's heart? Why he said, he's a man after my own heart. Because he was, he was just pure. He said, Lord, if it's your will, it's going to be done. So if we need to do this thing, well, let's just do it. If I'm an instrument, I'll do it. If all I have is a, a slingshot, you know, type thing, and he's got a big old javelin, <laughs> so be it. He didn't have any problem with it. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes when you got all you have is a slingshot and the world's got a big old hammer or a javelin and they're beating you down and you're like, all right, this is unfair. Who cares about fair? What about Gideon? Now, I'm going to whittle you down about 300 people just to prove the point. That's how God works. Maybe he's trying to do that on purpose. Maybe he's taking the, the meek, not the weak. There's a difference. Meekness is not weakness. Maybe he's trying to take the meek and prove his point in this world. Maybe he's trying to take, oh, I don't know, this little group, the meek, and prove a point in this disgusting sewer pipe called Massachusetts. I'm serious. No, for real, right? Be encouraged by that. You're here, aren't you? It would be really easy to stay home. It would be really easy to listen to your coworkers or your friends or your parents or your whoever else is negative in your life be real easy to do that thing, but here you are. Here we are, together, doing this thing. Maybe we're like little Davids. Maybe our church is like a little bit of David. Maybe we have that heart. Maybe Massachusetts is Goliath. Right? Maybe we're just little David up here on a hill in North Dighton. I'm encouraged. Consider Jesus' words to his disciples. Go to Mark eleven twenty two. Mark eleven twenty two. Mark eleven twenty two. <clears throat> and Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that which he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. That's all courage is, my friends. It's faith. Jesus said, have faith in God. Ask and you shall receive. You're going to have good motives. There's other scripture that says that. So you can't be asking, I totally believe that you're going to make me win the megabucks. As your motivation might be wrong, just saying. But if your motivation is right, and God's not a liar, and you have faith in God, then you can have the courage to ask for anything. The person who is encouraged is relying on faith as well. It's just a little bit more complex of a statement. 
you're encouraged. It's almost like, you know, there's having courage and then there's abiding in courage. Abiding in the reality that is courage, which means to be encouraged. Mark 11.24, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. So up here on the board, finding encouragement, there's nothing sweeter than the word of God for a wounded soul. Nothing more encouraging than the word imparted. You want encouragement? Every perfect gift is from above. Grace is a gift that's given through faith. So you better want faith. How do you get faith? Through hearing what? The word. Proverbs 16, 24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. The original cause for this sidebar on encouragement and courage began with this principle on practical sanctification. These things are all related. If you are being encouraged daily, then you are being sanctified daily experientially. Consider the flip side. If you are discouraged, something's wrong. God will never discourage a person for doing good. Now, in the process of understanding practical sanctification, we also surveyed love in Scripture. For example, go to 1 John 4.16. 1 John 4.16. So we also looked at love in Scripture, and we looked at John's discourse, of course, in 1 John, 1 John 4, 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And I gave you an interesting quote from Dr. Carl Menninger up here on the board. who's a famous psychiatrist. Psychiatrist and founder of the Menninger Clinic has written that love is the medicine for our sick old world. If people can learn to give and receive love, they will usually recover from their physical or mental illness. And that's, I'm assuming, from a lot of uh, practical experience, just in general. And just to keep God's love in perspective, though, we need also to remember that God is not an emotional basket case, even though he has given us emotions being formed in his image. Hyper-emotionalism can easily drown a person in ugliness. And I gave you an example from Alan Redpath, who's a a minister, evangelist, I believe, tells the story of a young woman who came to her pastor desperate and despondent. She said, there is a man who says he loves me so much, he will kill himself if I don't marry him. What should I do? Do nothing, he replied. That man does, doesn't love you. He loves himself. Such a threat isn't love. It is pure selfishness. And that's a very accurate thing to say. That is pure Selfishness. That person doesn't love that woman. That person loves themselves. Themselves. We also synthesize the following on the topic of love. What is love? God is love. First John four. We just read that. God gave His Son. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. Love is not characterized by romance. It is primitively selfless in giving, and that's what First Corinthians thirteen is all about not jealous, it's not unbecoming, etc., etc. So love is not characterized by romance. It is primitively selfless in giving. In other words, if you want to understand um, how he's sanctifying you, the number one litmus test is love. 
the number one litmus test is love. And not just romantic. Oh, I love this person. I love that person. Is, you know, so romantically. No. It's God's love, which is characterized in the Bible, I mean, predominantly by that, by the cross. That's not romantic. You can romanticize it, but that's not romantic. That's selfless giving of the highest order. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Well, that's a... Now, people have made it romantic, you know. Oh, I'll die for you, baby, you know. And they sell movies and books. But this is not the way God portrays his love. His love is always selfless and always giving. Always looking to others first. So that's really how you can tell. And I, believe, I agree with Menninger. Maybe not 100%. I don't think he's saying it's 100% that way either. But in general, there's a lot of sick people physically and emotionally because of this very simple fact. They don't yet understand the love of God. And even some Christians, I'm convinced of this, have the love of God in a little box or in a notebook or in some definitions that they've learned. And they think that's the love of God. And it's not. You'll know when you have the love of God because the Holy Spirit will show you you have the love of God. He's not going to disappoint you. He's going to encourage you towards that direction. You'll know you have the love of God when you literally, not think about it, you desire to give of yourself. You desire to give of yourself. That's how you will know. That's the great litmus test. If that's the pinnacle, and that's the direction of sanctification, this is how we know. The closer we get to that kind of giving, the more we've been sanctified. Amen? Amen. That's exactly how it works. So if you want, you don't have to know all the theology and all the fancy words and the Greek words and the whatever. You don't have to know that. You have to know, am I a selfless lover? Am I a giver or am I just giving so that I can manipulate? Am I just giving so that I can control? Am I just giving tit for tat so I can have something over this other person? Or am I just giving? Is it in my soul, is it more blessed? Not academically. Is it more blessed, yes or no, to give than to receive? Do I find a greater joy when no one's looking? When I give, then when I receive. Those are the types of litmus tests that we can all ask ourselves. And don't be discouraged because you're like, oh my word, I have none of those things. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. You want to be encouraged. You want to have faith. You want to be a giver. You want to grow up. You want to be sanctified. He's encouraging you right now. He's saying, stick with it. If you're not there, big deal. Who is? Just stick with it. Paul, we just read Paul. He says, I don't have it yet, but I'm going to leave you yesterday behind. I'm going to press on. That's what the Spirit's trying to say. You don't have to be a PhD, folks. Do you want me to just come in next time with little slips and say, Tammy Collins, PhD in theology. Joey Collins, PhD. Andrea Collins. Huh? Right? PhD. You, is it going to make everybody happy? No, seriously. That, would that make everybody happy? Then we can relax? Oh, now I have my PhD. Now I know what real love is. It's a piece of paper. Please. They didn't even have that garbage back in Jesus' day. Anyways. Love produces desires in us that we cannot even comprehend or articulate fully. That's true, it's indescribable. We do know one thing for sure, that love is the tie that binds us to heavenly things. And that love is the greatest motivation for our ongoing commitment to the Lord. Therefore, your life is in view. I mean, isn't that what practical sanctification is all about? Your life is in full view. Until you're all in, 
Life will be a mismatch of frustration and joy or confusion. It's really a picture of the war being waged between your new self and your old self, the flesh. In other words, that the details of that war, you know, like Paul says, no active duty soldier entangles himself in the details of life. That's what he's talking about. The details of life, the flesh is going to see it one way. Every day you get up, the flesh is going to see it one way, and the new self is going to see it another way. And you can sit there and worry about and try to break it up and lose your fingernails and, you know, like two dogs, right? Or you can transcend it. Say, this is going to keep going. I'm going to ignore the flesh. I'm going to take the guidance from God the Holy Spirit as I can. I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to fail, but I'm going to get up because that's what a righteous man does seven times after seven times falling. And I'm going to keep going all in. I'm going to keep putting all my cards on the table day after day and see if God's a liar or not or see if he's telling me the truth. I'm going to put all my cards in. You know, like in poker, I'm all in. Everybody's like, <laughs> well, do it. Say, I'm all in. God, as long as you push them to God, don't push them to the world, they're going to take it. Push it to God. I'm all in. I surrender. That's a big word for a lot of people. I surrender. People are like, new, no. new. No. Sounds good on paper, but new no. who? Not ready for that word. That word's too big for me right now. It's like in Sesame Street. Remember the big letters? No? Or was that Electric Light Club? I don't know. I don't know. Was, that, was, that, was that a show? Oh, well, sorry. She obviously has the PhD. I don't even know if we had TVs. Mom. Until you're all in... Life will be a mismatch of frustration and joy, flat-out confusion. That's not encouraging. To get up and be confused, that's not encouraging. So let's bring this back to sanctification proper now, lest we stray too far from our primary course of study. All this really started with Romans 12.2, at least in part. And do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually by the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes so that you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in his plan and purpose for you. Amen? Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.